Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, the 14th of March. I think Mondays are the day of the week when we feel our most powerless, when we are surrounded with events that we can't control. And this is a particularly um, dark Monday, I guess, in that context. Of course, the headlines are dominated by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the bombardment of Kiev and various other uh, deeply depressing events. Uh, meanwhile, um, Europe is, which the New York Times or an op-ed writer in the New York Times calls the dark continent, is the stage for another great migration of powerless people driven from their homes, seeking a new home. Um, and if that isn't bad enough, uh, there's a surge of uh, Omicron infections in China. So COVID isn't dead yet either. Um, as um, as uh, the conversation in the New York Times suggests this morning, there are, all there are almost too many things to worry about. We feel profoundly disempowered. All these events around us, we can't control anything. So we're going to do a show today about how we can regain control. Um, my guest today uh, is a British-based writer. Uh, and I guess political activist or social activist, John Alexander. He has a new book out called Citizens. Um, and as his, uh, as his website advertises, um, the headlines of our time are enough to, to make anyone feel helpless. But when we start to think and act like citizens, not consumers, everything changes. And I've got John joining me from Seven Oaks in Kent. Uh, John, uh, do you think we... As a species, uh, early 21st century species, do we feel particularly helpless on Monday mornings? Is that the worst <laughs> of the week? I think, mate, I mean, look, I think we're living in a moment in time when things are shifting profoundly. Uh, and I think an awful, uh, the, the, the examples you've just given, that, that headline, there are almost too many things to worry about, speaks to it very powerfully. I, th I believe personally that we're living in a moment in time most analogous probably to the, the, the period of the two world wars when, when the idea of how to run our society is the, the sort of the dominant idea of how society should work at a very fundamental level is essentially falling apart. And in that moment in time, we, we struggled, like the, 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 the symptoms are everywhere. Um, but equally, I think that a, a, a different idea of how we might organize, a different idea of how we might, we might work for a better society is coming through. And, and, and that, I think, is, is a profound source of hope. Uh, so, yes, I think it's probably, uh, in a way, I think it's probably both true that, that this is a particularly uh, difficult Monday morning, but also true that, that, that if you can peel back the surface and see, a see the world through slightly different eyes, then it might be a particularly hopeful Monday morning. John, it's interesting that you, you bring up the interwar period. Uh, that, of course, is something that many of my guests have brought up in terms of the rise of fascism, communism, civil wars of one kind or another, the Great Depression. But you also have a, an unusual take, I think, in, on your, in your book, um, Citizens. You suggest that 
the foundations of our idea as consumers was laid in the interwar period. And rather than looking at Marx or Hitler, you look uh, at Freud, uh, uh, maybe not quite formally, you have a, a, a strong background in advertising and you see the, the Freudian element being channeled through, uh, I think it was his son-in-law, Edward Bernays, into transforming us, maybe not so much from citizens, but from something into consumers. What happened in the interwar period, John, that made us think and be like consumers? Why not? I might start actually by going even further back. So in the ideas I work with, I talk about a shift in that in the dominant story of the individual in society from subject to consumer to citizen so from from people who have stuff done to them from people who for whom the right thing to do is to keep your head down get what you're given do as you're told on the basis that the right that the the god-given few know best and they'll lead us to the best outcomes for society as a whole and that that was that subject story was a story that that really reached its apotheosis under the british empire and the rule of queen victoria and and then and then fell apart really quite soon after that and out of the two world wars and we might zoom in on that a bit more in a, in a moment but out of the two world wars that's when I believe that the consumer story took hold that and, and the consumer so if the subject story says keep your head down do as you're told get what you're given the consumer story says look out for number one get the best deal for yourself choose the option that suits you best from number those one, that are what do you mean John what's number one Number mean? one being me, the individual. I am. I am number one in the and, in this. And was that the argument of uh, Edward Bernays? How influenced was he by Freud's work on the self? And well, I think. I mean, Freud is actually such an important figure in in the creation of the twentieth century consumer. Yeah, I mean, Freud was deeply. Uh, Deeply skeptical about human nature, Freud and and saw World War One when it when and most of his sort of most famous work came shortly after after the First World War. Well, came in the, just before and then and then immediately after. And he was he. It's Freud who who talked an awful lot about the idea that 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 that. that Civilization is a sort of thin veneer, keeping us from our from our sort of worst nature. Having lived the uh, First World War, it wasn't a hard assumption to come through. Uh, to come well, through. quite. I mean, this, this, you can see how his how his worldview was shaped by that. And 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 Bernays, as as son-in-law, was uh, was 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 sort of taken with this, but took it in a direction of saying, well, the role of uh, Bernays was essentially one of the one of the sort of fathers, as it says here, as a, of the public relations and propaganda industries. Father of public relations, and and, and, and Bernays is, I mean, uh, you know, the and uh, and of the advertising business, which came to dominate the twentieth century and and indeed the twenty first century. Absolutely, and 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 Bernays was the was the uh, the man who, who coined the phrase the manufacturing of consent. So so for Bernays, that was the sort of uh, it was the duty of the the wise few to channel the energies of the masses, channel the sort of inherent evil of the masses uh, into consumption, essentially as a as a as a distraction and in a way as a way of sort of fulfilling their 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 their. their their animal wants and needs in a way that would damage society to the minimum possible extent. And, and that's the sort of, in a way, that's the, that's the birthplace of the idea of the consumer. It's a, it's a way to, um, it's a way to channel our, our, our energies in a direction that, that, that doesn't, that isn't too destructive. So, and, to, um, to, um, would it be fair to say that it, 
in your worldview, in, in citizens, in, um, in, in the way you lay out the idea of, of your book, and indeed in terms of reclaiming the future. The challenge is to get beyond thinking about ourselves as consumers. First, we have to understand what that's meant, the damage it's done to us as humans and collectively to society. And then we need to get beyond that. Would that be fair? That's the heart of your philosophy and your work. Absolutely. There's two fundamental uh, arguments about human nature that I'm making in the book. The first is that we are humans are by nature citizens. We are collaborative, creative, caring creatures who, who can and want to shape the world for the better. The second, though, is that we are fundamentally storytelling and story dwelling creatures. And so we appeal to these deep stories for to understand how to be good essentially we want we, we want to be good we want to we want to be constructive contributors to society but but we appeal to these stories to tell us how and the story that we've been surrounded by for the last eight decades but only eight decades actually is this story of the consumer and that and that is that that is a story that has told us that the, the right thing to do is to accumulate even as the even as the that the environment can't carry it. You didn't even, we didn't even have a headline relating uh, to the climate uh, emergency then. John, that you've been very influenced, or perhaps you've influenced the filmmaker Adam Curtis, very influential British filmmaker. His uh, work, The Century of the Self, uh, 2002 uh, UK TV documentary series has been very influential. Are you very much in accordance with... Um, with Adam Curtis's view of the world in which we've essentially all been uh, imprisoned in this propaganda of consumerism? To a large extent, yes. I mean, I guess the, the place where I might diverge from Curtis, and I do think the century of the self, if any of your viewers, listeners haven't seen it, do watch it. It's, it's available in full on YouTube for yeah, one hour. It's, well, Adam, it's a masterpiece, but uh, it's, it's a very important work and a very influential work. It's very powerful. But I guess that if I diverge, it's probably um, there's a sense of a kind of plot uh, or a conspiracy or something like that, that in, in Curtis's work. And I'm, and I'm probably a bit more of the opinion that actually from what came before, which is why I was talking about the subject story before, this idea that, that there was a time when the right thing to do was keep your head down and do as you're told. And, and, and that and, and a sort of a rule by the few over the many. Uh, and, a, and a bargain of protection in return for 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 obedience that I think um, that there was even more limiting of human freedom and and so what come the consumer story for all that I think Bernays and, and others very much channeled it into something that was that has been very destructive I don't necessarily see it as an unalloyed evil I think I think and I can understand why it took hold like my, my mum grew up in the in the 1960s and 70s she she can remember her her family's first washing machine and it was called the hot point liberator right like these these this consumer era did bring, bring serious and meaningful freedoms I mean men had already for better or worse liberated themselves from the washing right <laughs> yeah, well, quite. But I think, I mean, there's there's a huge amount to be uh, to be acknowledged, but but that shouldn't stop us from from asking the question, how can we go beyond? And I think that of course, want to get to the future, John, um, and we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes and, and talk about after the break, how we're going to get from being consumers to citizens. But I want to go back just for a moment. What were we before? You, you mentioned we were subjects before we were consumers. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, well, yeah, long, that, that's, you know, 20,000 years of history. We were subjects. I know in your book, you bring up, for example, the Putney debates, the uh, 17th century proto-democratic um, events that surrounded the English Civil War. Were there particular moments when uh, we as subjects rebelled and in your historical narrative are important? Would it be the English Civil War, for example? Absolutely. I mean, I think the way I see it, we, we have always been and, and always will be citizens at some level. That's not to say we don't have the capacity to do each other great harm. But the phrase campfire democracy, for example, is in the literature. You go right back into who we are and how we organize as, as creatures and 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 seeking democratic in, in in the fullest sense of the term, decision making decision making processes is part of who we are. I think what what you get around the agricultural revolution, around the, the the first walls and the first cities and the invention of writing and so on, the first kings, I talk about King Sargon of Akkad. Uh, in the book, you have these structures where where uh, we are divided from one another, where where and, and where when we settle, great dangers start to arise and and start to be created as well. And and in those times, the bargain, as I mentioned before, of protection in return for obedience uh, starts to come up, and you get this paternalistic idea of the subject. And I think. What's important to acknowledge, particularly about that right now, is that in this moment in time where things feel worrying and uncertain, as you, as you so rightly set up the show, that that story is roaring back. And, 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 and I think that's what Putin embodies, for example, and what, what he's been, the energy he's been able to channel. I think we see it in populist leaders, authoritarian populist leaders all over the world, are channeling that uh, idea of offering uh, a solution. A particular philosopher, um, John, in the Western tradition, who you admire, I am listening to you and reading your work, Rousseau comes to mind, the idea that we are born free, he so famously remarked. And everywhere in chains. <laughs> are you in that Rousseauian camp? To some extent, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I, I think there's an awful lot to be admired in that work. I'm certainly much closer to Rousseau than I am to Hobbes. I don't, I find the the, the sort of red and tooth and claw thing pretty, just frankly, without evidence in in the in the real literature. But I think uh, I do think there are problems with Rousseau as well. So, Rousseau's argument that we are certainly not like. Uh, that we are not Hobbesian, that we are not purely self-interested. Right. But I think, I mean, there are limitations on Rousseau, right? Like I wouldn't want people to go to go away thinking that I'm uh, I'm the next French revolutionary because I'm really not. Uh, I, but I think the, that that starting point, I guess what I what Rousseau offers is that starting point of a belief in human nature and a belief in humanity. What I add, to, one of the things I add to that is this understanding of the idea of the role of story in our lives and the role of story in our societies and how it shapes us. And so I think, I think the the and plus we've got the opportunity of of, of vastly different technology now. Rousseau's probably greatest form is the idea. Yeah, I hear this all the time. Stories. It's such a cliche. So what? And what does that even mean? Well, look. So when I started my career in the advertising industry, uh, my first boss, my first boss, described my job to me by saying, "You're one of what you've got to remember is the average consumer sees something like three thousand commercial messages a day." By the way, the latest estimates put out near ten thousand. And we can and, blame and your, uh, Edward Bernays on that, right? 
Right, quite. But but when what you've got to think is that each of those carries an underlying story. Each of those repetitions. I mean, like the church bells that ring, the the, the call to prayer in various religions. All of these things are, are are reminders and insistent reminders of a story. And yet, in 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 consumerism, in in we have that that kind of call three thousand odd up to ten thousand times a day. So to to sort of dismiss the role of story is I think to be very naive about how we live and and, and the, the, the environments in which we live. And in a time when Daniel Kahneman could win the Nobel Prize for economics in 2008 for his work on unconscious processing and how we, and, and how we make sort of instinctive decisions based on environmental cues, to ignore the role of that kind of uh, insistence of information, insistence of storytelling, I think is is to ignore a, a, probably the most significant single influence on the way we think and act in our time. Well, speaking of stories and advertising, we're going to take a 60-second break where we're going to tell a story. I'm going to tell the story about myself in this show, Keen On. We'll be back in 60 seconds with John Alexander, the author of the new book, Citizens, and he's going to explain how we can get from being consumers to citizens. So we'll see you all in 60 seconds after this short story. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page. You can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with John Alexander, the author of Citizens, really interesting new book, uh, the subtitle of which is Why the Key to Fixing Everything is All of Us. John, uh, in his new book, uh, Citizenship, explains how we can get from being consumers to citizens. So John, begin. How do we do this? How do we get over those Monday morning blues of feeling so powerless all our lives? <laughs> Well, look, I think the, the, there's two aspects to this. The first is from the, to the side of the individual and the second is from the side of the leaders and organizations. We might come on to the second in a minute. But for us as individuals, 
the first thing we do is is figure out where we belong what the place what place we call home what domain we want to have an effect on and that might be local community it might be workplace uh, it might be some community of interest and then and then the next step is to find the others right like the, to say like who who else is here who cares and wants to make a difference here and then to ask what skills we have and, and what it is we want to do. I think that the reason why I emphasize that thing about finding the others is how different this is, the idea of citizenship, to the idea of the change you make as consumers, which is all down to individual behavior change, all down to what I can do alone to often to minimize my impact uh, and minimize my negative impact rather than to create positive impact by working with others. So critically, the idea of citizenship the idea of citizenship as a practice uh, is to say, where am I? Where do I belong? What, to what do I want to contribute? And who can I, and critically, who can I do that with? Sounds a bit vague. Sounds like an advertisement, John. I mean, where do we start here? Give me some very concrete steps of actually doing it. I know your, uh, uh, your day job is running the new citizenship project, so perhaps getting involved with a nonprofit like yours might be interesting, but this is a big idea which needs something very concrete, doesn't it? It does, but equally it's gonna look different for different people, right? So so the reason I, I put it like that, so step one might be you decide that in your workplace, so an example, uh, one of the employees of McKinsey Strategy Consultancy uh, a year or so ago uh, decided he was pretty angry that, that, that McKinsey was taking so much money from fossil fuel companies when actually that the values of the company seemed to be not aligned with that. He wrote an open letter to, to the partners of McKinsey, but he didn't send it immediately. He found he, he asked around, found seven or eight other people and eventually and, and they wrote that letter with with I think it was originally nine co-signatories. What happened then was that it started to be shared around the organization. And at this point in time, just to finish off this quick example, I think there are something like eleven hundred signatories to that letter. And, and it's really pushing the, 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 people, the partners who run McKinsey to, to engage with it. And this, this, is, this also is where the, so, so you can see what I'm saying there. Where do you belong? What's the, what's the community to what, which you want well, to you contribute? Know where you belong. If you work for McKinsey, I mean, it's one of the, the most powerful, well-paid, well-connected, networked. Uh, so you step into your power, right? Like the, there's so many people right, in this so moment in time feeling powerless. Power. So the people for work, the people who work originally for McKinsey are already going to be pretty powerful. But are you very much in the camp? We had Ronnie Cohen on the show recently. Are you very much in the camp of Cohen who believes that we can reform, re-architecture global capitalism rather than simply get rid of it? Because there's a huge debate now amongst progressives about whether capitalism can indeed be reformed or whether it simply needs to be gotten rid of entirely and replaced by something else. Well, look, I, I I find these isms the kind of I, I know it may sound glib, but I just find them pretty unhelpful, to be honest. Like for me, the, yeah, the opportunity saying that you can work within capitalism if you if if your model is McKinsey partners organizing to push the company in a certain direction. So you're making well, my model isn't McKinsey partners organizing to push the company in a certain direction. My my model is McKinsey. One of my many models is McKinsey employees organizing to push McKinsey partners to then push the company in a certain direction. What I'm talking to, but that, that the, that's analogous to uh, uh, 
a group of people starting to pick up litter on the streets of Grimsby in in in, in northeast Lincolnshire and on the coast of the UK, a, a very much a, a town that's that's had its fortunes uh, had a downturn in its fortunes and then start organizing from there to find one another and and decide what they can do from there and now they've now they've started a, a social housing provider and they've and they've la just launched a half million pound community share offer which would be enough to build and to buy and, and refurbish 10 different houses so the, 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 these things are all about the the core idea is where do you belong where do you want to contribute and how do you find the others to do that with and and how do you take the first step and then the challenge goes on to the the people in in positions of power but and, and the challenge to them is they have to open up that power they have to see what people are doing acknowledge it and come in behind it tell me your brew dog story you you make uh the british the, the innovative british um uh, drinks company Brewdog, uh, one of the models in your book. What is it about Brewdog that should educate and perhaps warn us? So the reason why I think there is something to be learned from them, uh, they are very much a participatory organization and they show that there can be a business model for that. So they've they uh, created, they started out with a mission to make everyone about as passionate about craft beer as they are. And that's taken them to a place that isn't just about selling as much of their own beer as possible. They've open sourced all their recipes. They effectively invented the concept of crowd equity where they they sold the share, shares in their organization to the people who drink the product rather than simply to people making financial investments that's freed them up to 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 make to to, to do what they want to do with the organization and to tap into the ideas and energy of those people who they call equity punks rather than simply have to manage their financial expectations and and i think that's fueled and powered a a, a vibrant fast-growing organization that doesn't have to make its decisions purely based on the immediate bottom line the danger of course is that is that not having that so in the in the sort of detail of this there's not that much genuine power given to those equity punks and and i think the brewdog guys have started to believe their own hype a little bit and, and right, not yeah, really yeah, sort of tapped into them. i mean you make one of the the metaphors the corporate metaphors in your book about becoming citizens but brewdog's also been in the news for much more depressing reasons there was a guardian piece a year or two ago about staff accusing the uh, the, the, the senior people in 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 the firm of a culture of fear um a marketing week talked about lies hypocrisy and deceit at brewdog are there better examples than brewdog and perhaps mckinsey which seems less convincing i mean what what is the best example uh in your view uh, john of uh of of a corporate rethinking of the idea of citizenship which gets us beyond the hypocrisy of brew dog look i think uh the reason why i write about brew dog in the book is because i think that there are an awful lot of organizations who could be doing it better like cooperatives including the co-op group in the uk which is a very large business who could learn from what brew dog are doing and doing uh, some of those tactics they're using uh, and do it an awful lot more authentically uh, and, and thrive off the back of it. I think that the, the great problem that we have in this moment in time is that, that, that too often those who want to, want to do business for good don't see people as have, don't see the people that, 
don't see their consumers, their customers, as having any real agency in that. They see good business means trying to save the world for people rather than giving people agency in that work. And so I think that there aren't that many great examples. I'll give you the, my favorite example of this work anywhere in the world comes from the sphere of government and is, and is what the, what, how the Taiwanese government has transformed over the last 10 years. And that, I think, is an example that pretty much anyone can learn from, if you'd like me to set that one out. Yeah, and I know you, you talk about Taiwan. You also talk about um, the citizen uh, assembly initiatives in Ireland. There was a headline in the Irish Examiner last week about 35,000 people invited to participate in a new citizen assembly. Uh, I actually made a movie, How to Fix Democracy. Uh, um, my team went to Ireland to film an interview some of the initiatives on the citizen assembly focused on abortion. Tell me about citizen assemblies and why for you they are uh, such a compelling model for us to regain citizenship and get from being a consumer to a citizen in the early 21st century. Well, look, I, I believe what we live in right now is what you might call a consumer democracy, where, where our agency is limited to choosing between options that someone else offers every few years and then staying out of it. And, and, and actually, even those decisions are, are increasingly framed as, as being made in the logic of self-interest. It's a perfect example of the application of this logic. What, what I believe we might be moving towards, and I think is emerging all over the world, is what I would call citizen democracy, where, where we all have more meaningful power over the decisions that shape our lives on an ongoing basis. And citizens' assemblies are a, are a perfect example of that. What a citizens' assembly does is it brings together a, a random selection of, of often around 100 citizens who, who are representative by key demographics of, of their population, uh, and they are offered a space in which to learn, deliberate, and make recommendations uh, regarding a key issue. And so this that is political is... reform, or at least it's a reform of our representative democracy system. Do you think there's something about representative democracy that brings out the worst in us as consumers? Is, it, is representative democracy the other side of the uh, consumer world or how we think of ourselves as consumers? Yeah, I, th I think I think representative democracy, as it currently stands, is is often part of the problem, right? The the the, the idea of of separating things into binaries, of of trying to win fifty percent of the argument but no more, is not is not a great place for us to be. It, it lends itself to to division and 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 it lends itself to corruption ultimately. The the opportunity, I think, of these things. And yes, the, the, the Citizens' Assembly is uh, one example of a way these things can be reformed. But, but I think there are some really interesting examples coming through where, where they go a bit further than that. And they're actually integrated into, into democratic systems on an ongoing basis. The city of Paris, for example, has just instituted the Standing Citizens' Assembly, which actually has oversight powers of, of the elected council. And, commission, and can commission up to, I uh, think, three or four specific issue-based citizen assemblies every year. There's a proposal in Canada, which I really love, uh, called the Democratic Action Fund, which would fund enough citizen assemblies that uh, within a, a period of five or ten years, I think it is, every citizen of Canada would either have been part of one of these things or would know someone who had. And what that would do to our conception of what it is to be a citizen uh, what our relationship to the state, what our role in, in the state is, would I think be fundamental. It, it, it shifts it 
transformatively from from just being a chooser between options to being a participant in shaping things. We and I think that that's business, business, so finally, yeah. at least you believe. Uh, I, I know you're a big fan of uh, the first global uh, the uh, uh, first global citizen assembly. Um, uh, global Assembly. Tell me a little bit about that and why why you think it's exciting. So this, so going back right to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about how this moment in time is is if anything analogous to that period just after the Second World War when there was massive institutional innovation, the creation of the the Bretton Woods Institutions, World Bank, IMF, the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the National Health Service here in the UK. We had all of these new institutions, all of which I believe were born of the promise of the consumer story. They were very much about individual rights, individual power, the European Union, the, 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 the World Bank and so on were very much rooted in an idea that trade is the route to prosperity, that, that, that consumption is the, is the way to, to, to keep people peaceful and happy. And I think what we're, the moment in time we're in now demands that level of institutional innovation again, but constructed around people as citizens and participants in shaping the world rather than just as consumers and traders. And I think that that is the, the, the reason I'm so excited about the Global Assembly is it's the first example of something that really speaks to that. So the Global Assembly was 100 people uh, randomly selected from across the world using NASA, so NASA satellite technology to identify 100 points on the globe and then and then recruit someone from from close to those points and these people were brought together over they're still working together actually they were brought together initially in the run-up to the to the cop 26 negotiations in glasgow the climate negotiations and and they deliberated and brought together a, an, a, an astonishingly ambitious and uh and very challenging kind of set of recommendations that 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 i think give you a sense of what uh what being truly accountable to the people of the world might look like if if we could build that into our politics far different from from what really went on at the at the core of those negotiations which was uh, the uh, very similar group of the same old suspects having yeah, the same yeah, actually, your work, um, you're thinking in citizens is is analogous in some ways to a new book by gal beckerman called where good ideas come from you should look at that because He's also talking about this sort of fermenting or this brewing using the brew dog metaphor of ideas, where they come from and how they develop in society. What about the role of education, John? Uh, I know you're a big fan of Eric Liu's Citizen University. Um, do, do we need to go back to school to learn how to be citizens? I did an interview uh, over the weekend with the uh, very distinguished Brookings um, political theorist, William Galston, who argues that we need to reinvent civic education in the 21st century. Is there a role for education here? There absolutely is. Just, and just to your previous point about where ideas come from, I'm a particular fan, Brian Eno, who, I was, who wrote the foreword from, from right. the book. He has this lovely phrase where he talks about seniors instead of genius. Uh, it's not in this forward, but it, but he it's it's a wonderful idea, yeah, and what he's right, really talking right, about is right, ideas and to the book. And oddly enough, we've been talking about Eno recently. Uh, he's very much involved in the Long Now Foundation. So there's a lot yeah. of brewing. A lot of these ideas are brewing all over the place in different ways. Um, do we need to go back to school though, John? Uh, so what I would say on this, I think. 
ultimately no like i think i think that my the way i would put it is that we are citizens by nature as i've said a couple of times and that's this is actually well, we're just selfish I and mean, there's nothing more annoying than happy cheerful people like yourself trying to tell us that we need to be citizens i don't want to be a citizen i want to be selfish you're surrounded by a story that's telling you that that's the right thing to do three thousand times a day. It's just a story. The, the the fact is that anyway you look around the world, you peel back the you peel back the lid, and people are getting organised and getting involved wherever they are. Even the, that's why I use the McKinsey example. Everyone thinks that McKinsey employees are the most selfish and materialistic and da 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 of anyone going, but they're the ones. That, those employees are a perfect example of people organising, finding one another, and making change. This is this is everywhere and in every aspect of society well, you could also push back on this and say that the the, the, the the new liberal globalized aristocracy wants to have its moral cake and eat it we want to be good and we want to be rich at the same time you i and the, probably most of the people in our audience we think we can be good and wealthy at the same time I don't know. I, I don't think. I mean, I'm not particularly motivated by by wealth or money. I, I'm more motivated by trying to get by. That's by you Seven Oaks, isn't it? <laughs> you you haven't been to my house, but we 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 can talk about that separately. But I'm uh, look. I, it's fun talking, um, John. Uh, finally, um, we do this with all our guests. Uh, in addition to Citizens, which has just come out, fascinating new book. Uh, what else should people be reading in uh, on March 14th, 2022, on a Monday to cheer themselves up, make themselves feel more powerful? So if you're anywhere in the world, you should be reading Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now by Ajay Tamelkuren, the Turkish uh, no novelist, poet, political commentator. You should, if you're in the States, you should definitely be reading We Keep It Safe by Zach Norris. Recently, uh, we need to get her to talk about that book too. Sorry, go on. AJ's a good friend of mine. Um, if, if you if you if you take back your vicious comments about my uh, my wealth and background, then I'll I'll put her on to you. No, I'm joking. Uh, the other and then the other recommendation I would definitely give is um, uh, well one we keep us safe by Zach Norris, which is about uh, a, a, a citizen and community driven approach to public safety. Uh, and then finally, I would re highly recommend uh, Tom Burgess's book Kleptopia, which yeah. is probably the best way to understand uh, how how Russian money in particular has been shaping the Western world and, and trying to buy them influence that Putin might have just over over calculated. Yeah, Tom's been on the show a couple of times. He's a wonderful writer. It's a particularly important book, given what's happening today. Well, John Alexander, real honor, privilege. Finally, John, um, and, and you're as well positioned in Seven Oaks to know this. Uh, John Alexander, the author of Citizens, who, who runs the world, John? Who's in charge? We all do if we choose to be.